Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. education is in a profound crisis. From dismal academic performance, bitter contention over gender ideology taught in elementary school, the damage caused by COVID school lockdowns, a collapse in discipline, and fear of violence, school has become much more complicated than reading, writing, and arithmetic. The questions are, why is education in turmoil and what can be done about it? My colleague at the Discovery Institute, Dr. Carrie D. Ingraham, has some cogent thoughts. Dr. Ingraham is director of the Discovery Institute's American Center for Transforming Education. She holds a Doctor of Education degree and a Master of Education degree from Regent University. Her undergraduate Bachelor of Arts degree was awarded from George Fox University, where she was named an academic All-American. Dr. Ingraham has abundant practical experience. Prior to joining the Discovery Institute, she spent nearly two decades leading in the field as a national consultant, requested conference speaker, head of school, virtual and hybrid academic director, administrator, classroom teacher, and athletic coach. Dr. Ingraham has been a guest on Fox News multiple times. Her articles on education have been published by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, The Federalist, Real Clear Education, The Washington Times, National Review, The American Spectator, Washington Examiner, The Epoch Times, The Seattle Times, Puget Puget Sound Business Journal, The Daily Signal, and a host of other media outlets. Dr. Ingraham was awarded the George W. Selig Doctoral Fellowship in 2013. The following year, she received the World Changer in the Field of Education Award from Regent University. In 2008, she was selected as a teacher of excellence. Carrie, welcome to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. You know, you're clearly passionate about education. Why did you choose that field? Well, you know, Wesley, I met a group of students when I was in college and was planning um, on having an office job post-college, but I realized being around students um, really just energized me, gave me um this love for life of their enthusiasm was so contagious. I love sports, was able to play tennis in college, had a background in basketball. And it was my senior year of college. I decided, um, forget the office job. I want to go into the classroom, uh, go into the athletic field, the gymnasium, work with kids and make a positive difference in their life. So did that. Uh, but then after eight years at the classroom level, I decided 
um, I really wanted the opportunity to help shape the culture of a school. So I went to school administration, did that. Um, it was a traditional school, brick and mortar, five days a week. Uh, did that for several years and then moved into what at the time was very cutting edge, the online virtual academies. All of this was pre-COVID. And what would it look like if we delivered education more than the just one size fits all and using some innovation where students could move faster when they were ready or they could move slower if they needed more practice um, and then moved into public policy here three years ago. And it's just really such a pleasure to be able to hopefully make a positive impact on the field of education on a national level because um, nothing is more important than the education of children, it's gonna set the trajectory um, of our country. And also just at the community level, the ideologies that these kids and the skills that they're coming out of schools with or without uh, will impact their community, their family, society. And so there's nothing more important I could be doing right now than working on public policy, K-12 education. It really is the foundation for human dignity and freedom, isn't it, having a good education? Absolutely. Why do you think that is? You know, without education, um, really that identity of the child is not developed. They're not able to unlock their full potential. Uh, for example, students that aren't taught to read, they don't have that foundation. Well, they're limited in what they can be exposed to. And so they don't discover all of these opportunities and some of the things that they could have a love or a passion for to bring meaning to their life and bring meaning to other people's lives. And so having a strong education is such a foundation for students um, really to figure out, you know, what is their purpose in life and how can they contribute positively to the benefit of others? And that doesn't mean every student has to go to college, does it? Absolutely not. You know, um, for a while, our uh, K-12 schools were thinking all these kids need to be taught the same way and on one track of, you know, if you don't exit your 13 years of K-12 education and move on to college, in essence, they had failed. Um, but there's really been a shift in that the past several years of recognizing that there is tremendous skills that are needed for these career technical education fields. There's a huge worker shortage. And some students are so gifted in those areas that if they're able to exit high school and get specific training for those advanced fields, which now are become more and more technical with technology embedded into a lot of these things um, where historically they weren't, um, students have opportunities in different pathways post K-12 that aren't just college, and that's the best for several students. Um, so making sure that high school is giving kids opportunity to be exposed and also see that their future is bright. Um, not just if they go to college. Yeah, you know, when I'm a lot older than you, but when I was uh, in, say, high school, uh, you kind of had two tracks, college prep, and then you had trade, a trade uh, prep, you know, becoming a plumber, becoming an electrician. But that second track is now much more, uh, as you said, technologically based than it was perhaps when I was in school, right? Yes, for sure. You know, it's just technology, computers, it's all integrated into things. So, for example, like shop class. Uh, well, shop class probably back in the day uh, didn't require a lot of skills in maybe like coding, um, technology. But today, students need those skills. Um, and also our culture and our society needs people that are experts in these fields um, just to contribute meaningfully 
um, through their interests, through their strengths. And there's such a strong population of students um, that if they're given the opportunity in high school to be exposed to these things, they can find great purpose in their life um, by utilizing um, what they've learned, that academic foundation, but in something that's not necessarily sitting in a classroom another two to four years at the higher uh, university level. At the same time, if our schools are doing a poor job of educating our students for college, um, and we'll get into that in a bit, uh, that can um, really impact their ability to succeed, can't it? Yes. um, You know, we've got to move away from this idea that education can be delivered today the same way it was delivered, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, even 100 years plus. Um, because what kids need today to be successful post high school looks very different because our world is different. And a lot of that is technology. Um, so making sure that they have a strong foundation. Um, some of the things we work on at Discovery Institute at our American Center for Transforming Education is we're advocating for graduation requirements to be changed, to be updated, um, making sure that, you know, this one size fits all, this historic K-12 public education system, um, which served students well way back decades ago, um, is being modernized today to serve students more effectively because a foundation is essential. Give me uh, what, uh, we don't have time to go into it all, obviously, and you, you guys are at the center doing an awful lot of work, but give me one example of a change that you think would be beneficial for students. Yeah, well, looking at graduation requirements, so for example, Algebra 2. That is a very tough course that a lot of students find themselves struggling with junior year. Um, There's a lot of high school dropouts that happen junior year and into senior year. And when you think about Algebra 2, you know, solving a quadratic equation, that (laughs) is a skill that every single person is going to need post high school. It's actually a really small subset. But then you look at personal finance. Um, There's very few states that require personal finance as a graduation requirement. In the states that do, it's just newly been adopted. But personal finance is something that these students are going to use every single day of their life. And if they don't have those skills, it can set them up for a very difficult road ahead. And so modernizing things like that, um, but also allowing different types of tracks, like you said, um, you know, maybe the Algebra 2 isn't needed for somebody going into a specific trade. And so making sure that we're offering courses that will best serve students in their future. What are the National Assessment of Educational Progress, NAEP, exam schools? And what are the latest statistics that we're finding? Well, the most current data we have came out in 2022, and it revealed the largest decline since the assessment launched in 1990. And the scores in math decreased by five points for fourth grade students and decreased by eight points for eighth grade students. So what does that mean? Um, So what we saw in 2022 was that 64% of fourth grade students and 73% of eighth grade students failed to score proficient in math. Um, Let let me interrupt you. What does it mean proficient in math? What what is the criteria there? What are the criteria? Yes. So there's below proficiency, there's proficiency, and there's above. Um, And so just, you know, that bare understanding of the concept, not that students have to score high in it, but just that they have the foundational concept 
um, learned is what proficiency means. And so when we've got 73% of eighth graders that are not proficient in math, they're not prepared to go on to high school, but we continue to push kids through the system every year. And then looking at the NAEP scores on the reading side, um, also in 2022, it was the largest decline in students' scores since 1990 when the assessment was launched, just like math. And the drop there was three points for fourth graders, three points for eighth graders, but that translates into 66% of fourth grade students and 69% of eighth grade students being below proficient in reading. And when students can't read, that keeps them trapped from learning all different types of academic content because reading is foundational. Um, some states have put into place the third grade reading test, which we would advocate and support because after third grade, students are reading to learn. You know, first they're learning to read. And so when we've got 69% nationally of eighth grade students that are below just the basic level of reading, that's going to hinder their ability to learn any other subject. Does that mean that 69% aren't able to comprehend and uh, understand that what they're reading on the written page? Yes, comprehension for sure, but also just the basic decoding of words, how to see a word and know what it means and how to you know pronounce that word. So all of those together. So I, I'm just going to make something up. Um, uh, reindeer, if, if uh, the word reindeer comes up, and you're not proficient, you might not be able to pronounce it correctly and and perhaps not even know to what it refers. Is that what we're saying here? Yes. And an eighth grader, you know, maybe they've heard the word reindeer, so they would recognize it if somebody said it. But when they see it written, that written word, they would not identify that as reindeer. They would just look at it lost, confused. Um, is, is that because we've... Uh, to a large degree, given up on phonics and teaching reading? Yes, whole language, uh, which in essence is taking phonics out of the equation and having kids um, just guess at words or look at other words within the sentence to try to make, a, you know, what they say, educated guess or assess what those other words are, has been a failed um, strategy. And so the science of reading has taken root in some states, Mississippi, for example, tremendous growth in their student test scores as they've implemented the science of reading. And the science of reading is very foundational, teaching phonics, teaching strong reading comprehension skills. Um, and so more states need to adopt the science. I'm trying to, to remember when I was learning to read in school. And I went to a public school. I got a tremendous education. But phonics is when you sound the words out, correct? Yes, learning the different sounds and how they come together. And that really needs to happen starting in kindergarten, first grade. And so, you know, students are learning to read in those grades. Um, but when that's taken away and you see kids in second, third, fourth, and even in the case here, 69% of eighth graders not being able to read, at that point, you missed like a really key developmental time in the life of that child to learn those things. And so because, it's because the brain is very plastic at that time, correct? Yes. And, and why did they move away from uh, phonics, which was obviously very successful and, and move to this uh, whole language? Was there some ideological purpose or did it just seem like it was boring for teachers to do the phonics? What was it? 
You know, there's a lot of tragic decisions that are made in education, just these new waves of new ideas, and they get implemented into policy, and you get influential people behind them, and then they're adopted. And when they're adopted, they're adopted at the district level, at the state level. And then they wait several years to see the data to track how it's working or how it isn't working. Um, but so a lot our of kids are, are almost like lab rats. They're they saying, let's try this and, and then we'll learn how it works in 10 years. And per, if it doesn't work, those kids will never have that time again. Yes. And sadly, a lot of times, like this is a great, um, not a great example, but it's a true example with reading is even when they have the data that it does not work, it is not helping kids learn to read. It's not effective. They double down and they think, oh, if we just give more time to it, you know, within the school day, if we bring in more reading coaches, if we spend more money, um, that then all of a sudden it's going to work. And so they double down on these notions and just continue them year after year instead of saying this isn't working we're going back to phonics or we're going back to other proven methods um, and other content areas, but they just double down and put more money at to the, into the problem, which does not solve it. I recently read in the news that some Baltimore schools had zero students proficient in math. And I think this was the eighth grade. How in the world is that possible? It's absolutely uh, horrific to see what's happening in these schools. So in Baltimore, for example, the superintendent makes $445,000 a year, the superintendent. They're spending $21,000 per student on average per year. And 23 of their schools within the Baltimore Public School District, 23 different schools, exactly like you said, zero students were proficient in math. And that Those 23 schools are made up of 10 high schools, uh, three middle schools, and eight elementary schools. Where does the 21,000? I'm sorry. I was just going to say not one student is proficient. Where does the 21,000 go per student when they are not even able to, let's say, uh, do a simple math equation? I would say a lot goes to education bureaucracy. And so in different districts, um, like just to give you an example, historically, um, on average, there was one adult for every 17 students in public school in 1950. Well, we're still doing the same thing. We're still educating kids. Class sizes are largely um, identical to what they were in 1950. But today, instead of one one adult employee for every 17 students, there's one adult for every 7.4 students. We also see that there's four times as many administrators today than there was in 1950. And 50% of school funding is eaten up in administrator costs, bureaucracy costs, district level costs before it even reaches the students in the classroom. So 50% of that 21,000 on average is just eaten up with things beyond the actual education of those kids in the classroom. So you're saying that that 50% doesn't include teacher salary? Correct. So so the money is going to the top and the people in the carpeted offices and the uh, nice views of the river and isn't getting down to the teachers and to the students with uh, with proper tech, uh, equipment, we'll say. Um why aren't the teachers unions up in arms about that? 
you know, the teacher unions are up in arms about a lot of things, but it has nothing to do with protecting the teachers or yeah. their conditions. It has a lot to do with um, just funneling these progressive radical ideologies. Uh, they're in lockstep with their Democrat um, political allies. And so their efforts are largely ignoring the teachers and the teacher working conditions, which is what a teacher union should be focused on is their members. And you would think they would want more teachers per student, uh, even just in terms of as a union, we'll have more union members if we have more teachers per student. Uh, and yet you have fewer teachers per student is what you're telling me, correct? Yes. Uh, as just one example, um, New York Public Schools. So it's the largest school district in the country. In 2020, they were spending nearly $21,000 per student, and it's gone up since then, but that was in 2020. Despite the fact their enrollment has gone down 9.5%. So they're spending more, but the enrollment's going down, and the money, it's not reaching the classroom. It's not helping children. It's going to the hiring of more and more employees that are not teachers. So you know, they'll call them support staff, they'll call them district level employees, educational assistants. And so again, instead of addressing the core issue, they're putting more money into it, they're putting um, more like kind of warm bodies around this education, more district employees, but they're truly not getting at the core of we are failing to effectively educate students. And money has proven over decades to not be the solution. It doesn't work. You look at private schools. And so on average, a private school is um, educating students. They're doing much better on NAEP scores at all levels, fourth grade, eighth grade, and 12th grade than their public school counterparts. But they're spending um, just over $12,000 on average, a private school to educate a child where a public school is spending nearly $17,000 nationally on average to educate. So, and the, so, so it is possible to educate students without more and more money, uh, but you've got to change the method and how you're doing it. Let, let me recap from my own thinking because education isn't my field. So you've said you've what what I what I've heard you say so far is that the uh, tried and true methods of teaching things such as reading and math were basically abandoned for um, new kind of woo woo uh, approaches, and that money per student has gone up, but that has not reached the classroom. It's at least half of it has gone, or much of it has gone to the bureaucracy, to the administrators, and to non-hands-on educators. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And so that's an accurate summary. And also that private schools um, are doing better uh, in terms of student performance for less money. Is it possible that's because public schools have to take every student, come what may, but private schools can say, well, this person has had a history of uh, disciplinary issues, and so we won't take this particular student. Is that part of what may be happening? You know, I think um, that's definitely like kind of the chief, um, what op the opposition will say is like the chief reason that private schools do better is because of the students they serve. Well, you have to look at the foundation of the education. 
private schools are very intentional saying that this is a partnership with the family. We're going to have curriculum transparency. We're going to communicate with the family of how the student's doing. We're going to make sure parents are involved. We're asking parents, you know, you're the expert of your child, not us as teachers. Tell us about your child. How can we work together? And that is proven throughout the data that when there's a strong um, parent-teacher relationship and they're all working together, the student's committed to respecting the teacher, the parent's committed to communicating with the teacher, supporting at home, that student learning goes up. Uh, Charter schools, they're not private, they're public schools, um, but they hold parents to that partnership approach. They welcome parents into the classroom And we see the benefits on the academic learning side by that approach. So, yes, people can argue, well, you know, private schools don't have to take, you know, all of these students um, that maybe aren't as strong in theory academically. Um, But why aren't they as strong? Because they've been in public schools for their foundational years. Or are they not as strong because they don't have the school working with the home? Yeah. You know, when I was, again, <laughs> hearkening back to the ancient history of my youth, uh, you had a strong parental involvement in, in the classrooms. I, my mother, as I recall, was the president of the PTA. And, and there was a tremendous, all of the of my friends' parents, you know, they all uh, were involved in some regard, sometimes even if it's just to run the projector when there might be a, a film shown. But there was a, a real interaction between parents and teachers. And you're saying that too often that no longer exists? Um, it's Parents are not welcome in public schools. We saw this more and more after COVID when schools finally reopened those public schools. Um, they were saying, parents, you can't even come into the school office. It's not safe to have what? you on campus while the children were able to return to school. And so they continue to put up these walls and prevent parents from being involved because they know that what they're teaching, the policies, the practices on some of these progressive radical ideologies are not in alignment with family values and what these parents want. And so they're keeping parents at arm's length. They're not providing curriculum transparency. They're inflating grades of students to say, hey, we don't have a learning crisis post-COVID. Look, your kids are getting A's. Well, they've dumbed down the expectation. Um, And Wesley, just this summer, the National Education Association, which is the world's largest teacher union, they had their annual uh, convening of their representatives get together this summer, and they released a video on one of their social media channels where teachers were parading around with signs that said, keep your nose out of my classroom. So that's the philosophy of these teacher unions, of these public schools, is there's no accountability and they don't want parents to know what's happening. Because when parents saw during COVID, during these remote school sessions, they had that front row window into the classroom, they were concerned and they started speaking up and parents started leaving public schools. Well, public schools, the teacher unions, you know, now their approach is to say, hey, hands off of my classroom. I'm not going to disclose what's happening there. I don't want you on campus because they saw that what they're doing is not in the best interest of children and not what families want. We've certainly seen that paradigm take place with regard to gender ideology, where some schools, I, I assume it's not all schools, I hope it's not all schools, 
But some states and uh, passed laws and some schools have adopted policies that if a child tells the teacher that they're not the sex they were born, that the teacher keeps that secret from the parents, which is stunning when you consider how important that kind of a, uh, a circumstance can be for the child going forward. Nobody knows and loves their children better than parents. Parents are going to be there far longer than the school year. Um, And so it's essential that parents are involved. But public school districts have a well-orchestrated plan where they start exposing children to this gender ideology that is so radical at age five, at age six, age seven, first grade, and kindergarten even. Um, through different classroom activities. So one of those would be the gender unicorn. It's an activity. Oftentimes it's a coloring sheet where children fill out this character, um, you know, with crayons that looks like a Barney-like character. It's a unicorn and it's supposed to resonate with children, feel good. Well, the activity asks children, what is your gender identity? This is for kindergarten, first grade. This is happening. And children can select. Am I a female, a woman, a girl? Am I a male, man, or a boy? Or am I an other gender or genders? It also asks them things on this activity is what is your sex assigned at birth versus what sex you are? And so it's they throw out all um, biological realities and they're asking children with huge imaginations to color this cartoon character and decide what sex they are. Also, you're talking, you said five and six-year-olds. This is starting as young as kindergarten classrooms. And, and this is taking time away from the hard subjects, I guess, for want of a better term, that they're going to need in terms of setting the foundation for more sophisticated learning in later grades. Yes, they're taking away time from reading, writing, just the basic core academics, but they're planting these seeds of confusion in children and they're exposing them to just these ideas that are so, so harmful to their basic confidence in who they are and their identity. But then they continue to do that through school policies, practices. Um, And if a child even has the slightest questioning of their gender after they've supplanted these ideas in their head and the child might ask, then they funnel them down these paths that they call gender affirming plans or gender affirming care, where quickly the school has this enthusiastic orchestrated effort to help the child choose their name that they want to go by at school, which would be of the different sex you know, decide what pronouns they want to use at school. Um, and then the other children are forced to adopt these. And if they're not, they're disciplined at school for treating kids poorly because they're not going along with this notion, this fantasy. And it's so secretive that they've created on their technology systems where they communicate with the parents where they have, you know, their grade book in the classroom, their rosters in the classroom using the new name, the new pronouns. But what's shown to mom and dad is their true name, their true pronouns. And so it's an all out attack on parental rights, harming children, but also forcing other children to go along what 
with this notion and what's simply not true of these children. I've certainly heard some of this uh, just from reading the news, and I I do a lot of writing on the uh, gender-affirming care issue, not so much in education, but in terms of of, uh, bioethics and the medical uh, procedures. But the question I guess I have is, you, you know, you hear these stories, and you don't know whether they're atypical or whether they're uh, quite uh, frequently, uh, parents are frequently being kept in the dark about these very important issues. Have you studied that at all? And, and what is your conclusion if you have? You know, when this was first um, being exposed and coming on the scene, I would say about four or five years ago, we were seeing it in more of the blue states in the large um I would say liberal uh, cities in those big school districts. But now it's coming out in red states, small town, rural America, where there's traditional family values. Um, But those public schools in those areas, I mean, this is across the country, are going against what the families want. So we're seeing it nationwide. I mean, Wesley, if you step on any elementary, middle school, high school campus today, they'll either be on the flagpole out front of the school, um, a pride flag, a transgender flag, or the combination, which is the most popular called the progressive flag that puts the gay pride flag and the transgender flag together. You'll see that on the school flagpole on public schools and an absence of the American flag. And if you don't see it out front of the school, You'll see it all throughout the hallway. You'll see it displayed on office doors, office windows, in classrooms. And so they're asking kids and they're setting this culture where kids are to give their allegiance to this gender ideology, even over teaching them about our country. So they, I mean, this gender ideology is all over schools, front and center. um, And it's really just this core value of our public schools where academics has taken such a backseat. Um, and that's essentially what public schools are tasked with, is the education of children and the education in the academics, not these ideologies. That, that's really disturbing. I think another statistic I saw when I was researching for this interview was that uh, I think it was 13% of students are proficient in American history at the eighth grade level, something like that. Yes, that number came out this year in 2023. Only 13% of eighth graders, um, exactly like you said, have that basic understanding of U.S. history. You know, this didn't just spontaneously combust. Uh, this comes from somewhere. Are, are, are they? Are these teachers, uh, I assume they're relatively newer teachers, not the uh, kind of old guard, are they being taught to do this in education schools? It starts in the education schools. It continues once they get to their public school district through the teacher training. Then they're handed curriculum that's mandated by the district and oftentimes at a state level that infuses it there. Um, They see their colleagues who have been there before them or longer going along with it. And so it's just all around this, this indoctrination. You know, a lot of these teachers don't think, I want to become a teacher and teach children an anti-American worldview, but they gradually, through the school of education, through the professional development, through the curriculum they're given, they shift their thinking to go along with um, this just new, horrific um, approach to saying things like, 
you know, America is just systemically racist and the overarching theme of our country is slavery. And, um, is this the make, equity agenda I've heard about? Yes. Making patriotism just something to be abhorred. And so kids are exiting the system like really with an anti-American worldview and they're teaching kids to hate their country that America is evil. Well, that can lead to <laughs> a real emotional issues for kids if they're being, let's say, sexualized. Is that a proper term to say what's happening with these uh, curriculum? Yeah. So they're being sexualized. They're being introduced into a, a world or part of life that usually you wouldn't get into until and then you did in big time when you're a teenager. Um, and they're being taught. I mean, I was taught patriotism, obviously, again, being my age, you're, you're being, they're being taught that they live in a horrible country that would lead, it seems to me to mental health issues. And is that part of why our kids seem to be having such difficulties with depression and so forth? Yes. I mean, kids were isolated during COVID. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't act, interact with their friends. You know, their alternative was to be on their cell phones, the internet, devices, video games. So we took away their ability to be creative, interact with other people to learn. But then when we brought them back to these public schools, critical race theory was front and center of teacher training during the school lockdowns and continued when schools reopened. And so the activities when kids came back to school after just this horrible isolation, this lack of learning, was they were set up against each other. They were pitted against one another to say, you know, if you're white, you are an oppressor and your fellow peers over here, this was happening in elementary classrooms to young children. You know, if your um, peer over here is black or brown, a different skin color than you, then you are oppressing them simply because you are white. And so we've attacked their basic biology through the gender ideology. And now we're telling children just to bear this shame and this guilt and responsibility when they haven't done anything wrong. Or on the other hand, children are vic being said, you're a victim. And so they're taking away the ability for children to learn personal responsibility, all simply based on race. And then we're seeing in the school discipline that um, they're trying to make it all equal based upon race and not actually who breaks the school rules and not. And so kids know, well, if I'm of a certain race, I can get away with X, Y, and Z at school because they have to meet these quotas that are put in for discipline. Um, what, what, what do you mean by quotas put in for discipline? Yes. Yeah, so it started in the Obama administration where schools would receive funds. They were incentivized to not have racially minority students, black and brown students disciplined in greater proportion than white students. And so they received funding to meet these metrics. And well, so what, what, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt. Uh, on one hand, of course, you do not want uh, little African-American kids to be treated differently from white kids to be punished more severely. Uh, which I believe has happened in the past. Um, on the other hand, uh, you certainly want people to have personal accountability. What did the money go for that was incentivizing this idea of kind of equality of outcomes regardless of behavior? Am I correct about that? Correct. 
the money would go into the district. And so the district was like incentivized, adopt this new uh, discipline approach where you make sure it's, you know, culturally responsive or forced outcomes. And then if you adopt it and you have the right metrics of disciplining, you know, that it's Meaning the statistics of people who were uh, kids who were disciplined. Yes. Then you're going to get this bonus fund. And so, you know, out goes the window of let's treat kids fairly. Let's hold high expectations for all kids. Let's make sure we have a culture of respect at our school. And that went out the window to say, oh, well, we've got to let these things slide over here. And we've got to make sure we crack down over here so that we get this dis- with this extra money for our district. And that's also true of, of having the students, I guess, attend, that they get paid for the attendance so that student... Am I right about that? And there's, there's, and I have a vague memory of this, that um, that means that sometimes I've even lied about whether students are in school in order to make sure they get the funding. Yes. And different states have different seat time requirements, um, how it's all linked with funding. It's not a simple, clear cut across the country, but um, they do get funding per student And when those students, you know, don't come to school or when students, you know, unenroll and parents go elsewhere, they lose money. And there has been cases, to your point, where um, there's lying, there are unethical practices to report that they have more students than they don't in these schools uh, to get greater funding. There's also a, um, I'm just again going from what I've seen in the news, a, a terrible discipline problem that's developing where you actually have some students in some schools um, attacking teachers. Uh, there have been, you know, brawls, B R A W L S, in schools. Uh, is that arising? And first, is that happening or is it just anecdotal? And second, is that because of this equity agenda, in your opinion? I would say absolutely. It is happening without a fact. Um, You know, it is not safe to be a high school teacher in these districts that go by the equity discipline um, approach because these kids know, you know, based upon my race, I can get away with things. Nothing's going to happen to me. I might be sent to the office and I'll come right back where typically it would be, you know, a suspension or an expulsion for the degree of things, violence against teachers, um, out, uh, outright defiance, you know, refusing to put cell phones away, refusing to stop profanity, refusing to stop shouting in the classroom, throwing chairs. I mean, just extreme things we're seeing um, nationwide, but they know there's not a consequence. And so you look at schools that have high expectation for students, Public charter schools um, would be one example. They don't see this. Those teachers aren't threatened because they've developed a culture in the school where the kids know that they will be held accountable for their behavior. Basically, Uh, you're cheating the the students. When you do this, you're cheating the students and and depriving them of the ability to uh, become constructive citizens in society because at some point the hammer will come down. Yes, and they're stealing the opportunity for the from those other students to be able to learn in the classroom. Right, I mean, it's a disservice to everybody. It's a disservice to the teachers. It's a dis because of the danger and what they have to experience. A disservice, exactly like you said, to those kids that are acting out. You're not teaching them responsibility. 
you know, you're helping set this trajectory of their life, which is not going to work out well. But all of those other kids whose parents are sending them there to learn, it's not a conducive academic environment. It's utterly chaos. So you, you can't learn in chaos. You can't learn in chaos. You can't learn when you're afraid to go to school because you know that, you know, say in an elementary classroom or a middle school, you know that so-and-so can do whatever you want um, to other children, whether it's bullying on the playground or whatnot, because, you, you know, you know that he just does it, he gets away with it or she gets away with it. Um, and so kids are scared to go to school. They don't feel comfortable because the lack of discipline, the last respect, it's utter chaos. Um, but it all stems from this woke agenda of equity. Um, which and, is and it's showing up in the statistics of proficiency. Yes. Huh. Um, I, I've also been noticing that, you know, there's been a decrying of supposed book banning in, uh, let's say, middle schools and, and school libraries. But then I've also seen examples of, of some of the material that has been prohibited, and it's, it's outright pornographic. Uh, graphic novels, which I used to call comic books, depicting literal uh, visuals of oral sex and other kinds of sex and kind of promoting a almost a promiscuous lifestyle uh, in the pages of these books, in addition to uh, some of those books uh, teaching people about uh, gay sex and this kind of thing, is that, again, and, and I don't have any children, so I'm just going by what I read, is that something that is, is uh, an occasional problem, or is that something, as you said about uh, the, um, the, the problem in terms of uh, the equity agenda, is that something that is actually spreading even to uh, more red state schools? Well, uh, October 1st through 7th, um, so right here, is called the Banned Book Week. So it's an annual event. It's sponsored by the American Library Association. And what they do during this week is they promote controversial and explicit books. And so they try to fuel this narrative that book banning is widespread. And I would say it's not book banning when a school decides that there's books that are not appropriate for the school library because they are so explicitly, um, just the sexual content of it is not appropriate for children. It's not age appropriate. Parents are concerned. That's not book banning. That's protecting the innocence of children. That's supporting the values of moms and dads. And so uh, just to give you an example of some of these books that are placed in school libraries, including at the elementary level. Uh, graphic novel um, called The Gender Queer, for example, it's got illustrations of masturbation, oral sex, sex toys, erection, a man holding a penis. And that's a book that they're trying to promote. And they're not just putting it in- In what grade? In what grade? Even as young as elementary libraries. They're displaying these books for kids. They're propping them up. They're not just slipped in the back. Um, parents are outraged. Parents are concerned. But they're, they're coming across with this notion of, you know, censorship, banning books. Again, it's not banning books. It's protecting the hearts and minds of children for what's not age appropriate. Another example of one of the main books that they're trying to push on children through public schools is called 
all boys aren't blue. Uh, this one's appeared in middle school classrooms and libraries particularly. The book details descriptions of sex as well as sexual assault. You know, that is not what kids should be coming to school and reading about and being exposed to. And there's more. I could go on. Um, what do the, the people who put these books in these libraries, how do they defend that? What are they saying is the point of, of having such uh, sexually explicit material for children? It all stems back to promoting this gender radical ideology, making it just a core value of foundation of public schools. But so you, could, you could tell people to respect their classmates who may have uh, a you know gender confusion without getting into the explicit pornographic depiction of sex acts. You would sure think so. Um, but they're pushing and pushing so much. I mean, it wasn't enough to just expose children to this, to hang up the trans flag in classrooms on the school flagpole. But now it's just, it's over the top of visually depicting things that would make most adults uncomfortable to see and things that parents are trying to read at school board meetings saying, my child brought home this book and they open it and they start reading it. And we've even seen across this country, kids come to the school board meetings, uh, upper elementary and middle school kids to try to read some of the things that librarians have sent them home with. And their mics are shut off at school board meetings. Hey, you can't say that here. It's not appropriate. They don't get the irony? <laughs> not at all. It's it's so absurd. And so this week, you know, they've got their banned book week. It's an all-out campa uh, campaign to say, you know, that parents need to keep their, their opinions out of the classroom. Teachers are the experts. All these books should be there. We're not going to censor anything. Um, but it's just under the guise of pushing this radical ideology on children at the expense of academic learning and really protecting their innocence. The media seems to play a role in this. That is not reporting what you just described. So somebody might think, well, Carrie is, you know, she's the radical and, and she's the one who's uh, pushing her, uh, let's say, religious beliefs or, or her moral beliefs. And uh, because what's really being banned are uh, things like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or something. Uh, how would you respond to that kind of uh, rejoinder? Yes, that's exactly what's happening. They're picking, you know, an upper high school level novel to say, you know, well, these are the books that are being banned. These are great classic pieces of literature. We shouldn't ban these. Um, but in essence, that's not what parents are out crying about. It's when their child is exposed to a book with sexual nudity, this extremely inappropriate, sexual, sexually explicit acts. Um, when these kids need to be learning how to read, they should be reading about things that, I mean, are so age appropriate. Um, and there's never a time that a school should be pushing something on that is so inappropriate, it can't even be read at a school board meeting full of adults. You know, I, I developed a love for learning, uh, uh, reading, I'm sorry, uh, in elementary school by reading things like um, uh, Black Beauty. I mean, books about horses, uh, The Golden Stallion. I, I, I forgot some of them, but I, I mean, you'd get transfixed by it. And of course, when you're enjoying the reading, you want to read more. I can't imagine 
seeing that kind of explicit material and actually being able to read, because it's not about reading paragraph after paragraph and following a storyline and a narrative uh, through through the uh, book. It's about purient, uh, creating a purient uh, um, thought process in the child and sexualizing them, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what position does it put these innocent children in where they're exposed to something like that? For example, say an elementary child, oh, they get home or a middle school child, they've been exposed to this. They're so uncomfortable. And, you know, a lot don't go and talk to mom and dad because they literally are like, this was horrific of what I just saw. I don't know what to do with it. And so we see children then turning to the internet. And so they're looking up these terms. They're trying to figure out what was that all about? I see. Um, they're really uncomfortable. And then unfortunately, when they're getting their answers from the internet, yeah. it's the worst possible place. I mean, you know, the social influencers who are, again, just peddling this stuff to children. And you're not going to learn reading how to read by reading a graphic novel. I mean, a graphic novels, a com- when I was a kid, as I said, is a comic book. I mean, we did that for fun. I'd read Archie or Superman or something like that. But that wasn't in place of learning how to actually read a book. Yes, that's after you know how to read. Yeah. You know, kind of like the rewards. You go read the comic book after you've completed your, you know, academic learning, your assigned reading. Um, it's what kids read at recess, you know, on the bus ride. But those, those should not be the staple books, comic yeah. books. Um, but we just got to move education back to a place where um, parents have input. Uh, it's not in secret from parents what's happening. There's curriculum transparency. There's high expectations for all. There's discipline. But core academics are being taught, not these fringe ideologies. So how do you think we get to that place? You know, it is so polarized right now. Um And the teacher unions, the public school leaders, they're digging their heels down. They're doubling down on these agendas. Um, They're locked up with the political, uh, their political progressive allies. And so it's all a funding cycle, more students in seats, more teacher union dues, more funding for the Democrats that they put these teacher union dues into their political campaigns. And so it's just all this self uh, cycle there that the only way to change it at this point is to allow families to exit the public system to find the education that aligns with their values, that has high expectations, that has proven academic results. And so what we've seen uh, over the course of the last two years is an explosion of school choice. Uh, Parents spoke up. They were concerned with how long schools were closed. They were concerned with the lack of academics. And now they just continue to say, hey, enough is enough. This is my child. I'm not going to send them to you as a teacher in authority over my child during the school day to teach them to hate their country, to hate their fellow classmate based simply on skin color or to be exposed to these things. But there's a better way and we're going to find it. And so parents have spoken up. The general public is now in support um, by huge margins of school choice And Wesley, what gets me so excited is families are being freed. And we've seen now over the last two years, 10 states now have universal school choice signed into law. What does that mean? That means universal means every single family within the state that has a K-12 student can exit the public system and use their taxpayer dollars 
to select an alternative education, uh, whether it's private school, whether it's tutors, homeschool, micro schools, there's different types of school choice, but the most flexible would be what's called education savings accounts. And so they can use those for a host of avenues to educate their child outside of this government-run union-backed system. So an education savings account would allow parents to take their own money, put it in the account, and get a tax deduction, right? Um, Actually, with education savings accounts, what happens is the state portion of that student's funding Uh, So let's talk hard numbers, for example. So Arizona passed universal education savings accounts last year in 2020, uh, 2022 under Governor Doug Ducey. And so families, all families in Arizona have the option to say, do I want to get a portion of my child's state funding, which is around $7,000, while the public school for that child gets almost $11,000, but the family would get that portion of the state funding, not the local, not the federal And then they can pick a different place that they want to educate their child, you know, whether they want to pay for a tutor, pay for a micro school, use it towards uh, private school tuition. They could use it for homeschooling expenses. So that's what an education savings account is. They're getting the government state funded portion. They can apply it to a host of things. So the money doesn't go into their checking account, but it's like a voucher or a scholarship or, or something of that sort? Yes, it's. Uh, Best to kind of think of it as like a savings account. So it's there. And then the parent, um, you know, they've got digital platforms where the money doesn't actually like come to the family. So the money goes on the platform. The parent can allocate it out, pay that education provider right through the platform. Different states are doing it different ways. Um, But this this the idea where the money follows the student. Yes. Funding students and not funding systems would be kind of the tagline of it. And, and it, it seems to me it would promote competition that if the uh, regular public school wants to keep students, uh, they're going to have to up their game. It also would seem to me that it would allow entrepreneurs to say, well, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here for us to develop a good private school that will attract these students and, and we can uh, obviously get that tuition. Is, is that the idea here? Yes, creating new schools, existing schools, expanding. So, I mean, as these school choice programs were very small and overnight they went to universal now in 10 states, we've got to increase the supply of education um, providers and education entrepreneurs um, are popping up on the scene. Uh, They're creating innovative learning models that don't look like necessarily just a Monday through Friday, six and a half, seven hour school day. Um, but they're meeting families with what families want. They're responsive. Um, and so families, it's this open marketplace now. Uh, principles of free market where uh, innovation goes up, price goes down, competition. It's all to the betterment of families, kids, to education by getting the public school monopoly out of the way. And so with 10 states having this universal Uh, school choice. And not all 10 states have the flexibility level of the education savings account. Six of the states do. Four have more traditional um, private school vouchers or tax credits that can be used for private school or homeschool costs in four of the states. But more and more states are coming on the scene, red states, to say, we want to empower the family. We know um, that the public school system is not serving the vast majority of students, helping them reach basic academic proficiency. And 
Wesley, if we just look at um, what happens when a student exits their 13 years of traditional school time, 77% of students are not proficient across the seven core academic subjects average. And so it's failing. It's no secret. Um, well, that, that's, a, that's a potential for societal implosion. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're not preparing our future electorate, our future military, our future business leaders. You know, we've got problems on the economics of the future of our country when we don't educate our kids. But it's also national security is an issue for our country. If we're producing just generations of kids that are not prepared, that do not have skills, um, that are just not equipped for life. But that's what's happening currently. It would seem to me that the people who might want this the most would be um, uh, people of color, families of color, because they tend to, they have at least historically tended to have the worst schools. Uh, are we seeing a, a support for school choice among minority communities? Yes, without question. Um, it's across the board. But particularly Black, Hispanic families are in huge support of school choice. Uh, micro schools are popping up all over the country. And a micro school just means it's a smaller school. Uh, there could be, you know, multiple teachers in the school. It's not necessarily a one-room schoolhouse. Um, but it's not your big, you know, typical elementary, middle school, high school model. It's smaller. Their goal isn't to be big, but as they grow, they replicate and produce more. Well, in these micro schools, there's now uh, estimated to be 125,000 micro schools nationwide serving um, anticipated a half, one and a half million to two million students as of now. And these largely just came on the scene the last three years. Well, Black and Hispanic families are looking for these schools. They're finding a way to enroll their students in these schools. They're starting these schools um, because they know that education is going to change the trajectory of their child's life um, for the positive. And so they're finding ways and the micro schools have been a great fit. Um, well, that is an innovation that I actually hadn't heard about. It seems to me, just from what you're telling me, um, and this is my first impression, that would allow a more personal hands-on experience for students. Yes, and the bureaucracy isn't there. You know, so the cost of these schools, they're not, the tuition, it's not getting eaten up half of it before it even reaches the classroom level. It's all going towards the children, towards their education. They're keeping their costs low. They're keeping their quality high, high expectations for students. And I think one of the most important aspects of these micro schools, which is making them so successful on student academic success, is that they're partnering with the parents. They're inviting parents in for um, to just be involved in the classrooms as they can but also inviting them in to say, here's what we're teaching. What do you think? You know your child best. How are they learning this? Here's how you can help reinforce it at home. And they're equipping parents to really be that primary educator, which is a game changer for a student. Learning. And, the, and, and make sure that they uh, achieve the, uh, you said 73% or whatever it was, don't now, but that they achieve the kind of proficiency needed to graduate. I yes. mean, they're not doing away with that, are they, That those kinds of standards? No. And these schools are, I mean, they're small, they're nimble, they're responsive, you know, so Johnny's struggling with something. They don't have, you know, 
four classrooms of 25 kids per classroom, and they've got to stay on this one size fits all track to teach, you know, we teach this on Monday, we teach this on Tuesday, they can adapt so they can meet that student where they are, give them more practice, teach it a different way. I mean, they're so responsive to kids um, because of their size. Other kids, they can give more, you know, challenging work. And so parents are seeing, you know, education can be customized to my unique child's strengths, interests, abilities. And when kids are successful and parents are involved, the children's motivation is going up, uh, their engagement. And when children are motivated and children are engaged in school, it's all linked with their performance. Isn't Um, there also a problem, though, with uh, families not in two-parent homes or families that have dysfunction, uh, is there any way to reach the children in families that are not able to devote themselves the way you just described to participating in uh, their kids' education? Yes, and these micro schools, um, some meet in a hybrid format, you know, two or three days a week on campus, two or three days a week at home, but the majority are still five days a week. So it works for working parents. And the parental involvement might just be, you know, at pickup time, that quick conversation or, you know, sending home notes, emails, those correspondence, text messages to parents. So they're touching base, even recognizing that they're serving a lot of two working families in this model. Well, that that's uh, something that I think really is important because you've really alarmed me, I have to say, as, as somebody who doesn't deeply follow these issues. Um, if you're not going to be able to have an educated citizenry, and if you're not going to be able to have a citizenry that is disciplined uh, and law-abiding, you're going to end up with a social anarchy. And and in fact, I think you're already beginning to see that around the country. And certainly you can't blame the schools for all of it, but maybe a part of it. You know, Just a couple great quotes that frame this up really well is a quote that's attributed often to Abraham Lincoln. And it says, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation becomes the philosophy of the government in the next. Um, Similarly, um, uh, G.K. Chesterton says, education is not a subject and it doesn't deal in subjects, but it's a transfer of a way of life. Mm. And so getting that parent involved, getting these radical ideologies out of the way, allowing people to educate their child through alternatives than just the public system. It's got societal benefits, but also it equips that child um, with a worldview, which is going to just shape the entire future of their life. And the American Center that you had, are there materials that People could uh, hit the link. There will be a link to the American Center on the program notes. Uh, Is there anything there that uh, might help people? Because we're just about out of time. I could keep talking for another hour here. Yeah, so I'd invite anybody to go over to discovery.org forward slash education. You can check out what we call the bottom line. We've got tons of articles out there. We've got videos to let people know what's happening um, in public education, the opportunities on the horizon with education entrepreneurs, talk about micro schools, protecting parental rights, just a host of topics are out there. Again, discovery.org forward slash education. This is a real tragedy too, because schools used to be a source of community unity. And now it seems to me it's just the opposite from what you're uh, telling me. 
Yes, it is a tragedy, but I would say, Wesley, there's always hope. There's hope because parents love their children. They're getting involved. They're taking a stand. They're speaking up. Um, And when moms and dads get involved and they advocate for their child and they're making sacrifices and they're taking steps to protect the hearts and minds of their kids, but to also make sure they're getting a solid academic future, um, despite everything that's happening, it gives me hope. Um, because what those moms and dads are doing. Well, and I appreciate the efforts you make to uh, help the next generation. Uh, we got to go, but one last question. What next for Carrie Ingraham? Just keep doing what we're doing. It's such a joy to be at Discovery Institute. Uh, and so many great organizations around the country um, are working on K-12 education. We're collaborating. We're joining efforts um, to move the needle as most we can. Um, For each individual student, we want to see universal school choice, not just in 10 states, but in all 50 states. We also want to make sure those kids that remain in those traditional public schools have core academic quality instruction every day, safe learning environments, innovation, um, and also making sure there's high expectations for all students. So we're working on education freedom as well as in those traditional public schools. Well, that's terrific. I'd like to talk to you again sometime. Thanks for being with me. Thanks, Wesley. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.